Well, good morning, New Hope family, and happy Father's Day to all of our dads out there this morning. Uh, if you and I have not had a chance to meet, my name is Matt Thompson. I'm the student minister here at New Hope. My wife, Caroline, and I just moved and back to the Indianapolis area last year, and we started attending New Hope in the fall. Uh, and can I just say, we have loved every single second of being a part of this awesome church family. This community has been so welcoming toward us and loving toward us. So if you're a guest here this morning... I know and I hope that you will experience that same loving and generous and welcoming spirit that we are so gracious to have experienced here at New Hope. This is a special, special place. Um, so as I said, I'm Matt Thompson, and this morning, I, had, I was talking to lots of people before the services and throughout the day. Uh, this is my first time preaching here at New Hope, so I had a lot of people saying, oh, you know, good luck, or like, no, no pressure, you know, are you nervous, all those things, and I'm thinking... You know, there's no pressure at all. You're right, because, you know, preaching is just the Lord speaking through you. So if the sermon stinks today, you can take it up with the big guy. Like, it's not me. Um, and as always, you can send your complaints to rob at newhopecc.net. Um, but that's a given. So if you've been here with us for the past several weeks, we are studying uh, anger. We've been in, studying this series on anger for the past four weeks. Uh, we've been studying the book of Ephesians as a church throughout this entire year. Uh, and we're sort of coming up for air, as Rob has said in the past during the summer, to kind of breathe from that long expository study of Ephesians. And we've been talking about anger. So this morning, what we're going to be focusing on is specifically those moments when we become angry at God. Have you ever felt angry at God? I'm sure most of us have. I know I have. And I think that the encompassing reason why we become angry at God is that we believe he is responsible for something harmful or unfair. I lose my job. Lord, how could you allow this to happen? Or I get a heart-wrenching health diagnosis. God, why did you do this to me? Or my brother or mother or sister is killed in a car accident or I have a miscarriage or I witness abuse. God, how could could you? We start to blame God for the pain and the suffering in our lives or for not preventing the pain and suffering in our lives. And when we start to blame God, we then become angry at God. So the question we're going to wrestle with today is, is it okay to be angry at God? And I know, to be honest, I certainly have been angry at God. Like I mentioned, I'm sure a lot of us have, and that's okay. God can handle our anger, but the question is should we be angry at God? Is it right? Is it logical? Is it just to be angry at God? And that's a question with which the prophet Habakkuk came face to face. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. You can go ahead and grab one and turn to the book of Habakkuk. If you're using the one here in the room, it's on page 806. And Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, minor simply referring to the length of the book, not to its importance uh, against some of the other prophetic books. But it is a shorter one, and it's located near the end of the Old Testament, right between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah. So you can take a moment to turn there. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you about your last conversation that you had with a toddler. How did that go? Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a toddler about why we have to do something? It might go something like this. Okay, Timmy, it's time to put your shoes on. Why? Well, because your feet are going to hurt if you don't have shoes on. Well, why? Because we have to go outside. Why? Well, because you have to go to school. Why? Because you have to learn. Why? Because it'll be good for you in life and help you be successful. Why? And at some point, there's a, because I said so, thrown in there that usually ends the discussion. Many of us have had that exact conversation. And I think we often tend to do this with God 
us playing the role of the toddler as we ask the question of why is this happening over and over and over again, either consciously or unconsciously. And Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and God. And one distinguishing factor about Habakkuk is that while most prophets bring God's word to the people, Habakkuk also brings the people's questions to God. He asks our why question in his dialogue with the Lord. So we'll pick up in the first chapter of Habakkuk, verse 2. It says this, hear the word of the Lord this morning. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence! but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And in verse 4 here, where Habakkuk writes that the law is paralyzed, he uses the Hebrew word pug or pugah, which is used only three other times in the entire Old Testament. Twice it comes in the book of Psalms, once in chapter 38 when David is writing about his physical anguish and pain he's experiencing because of his own sin, and he writes that he is feeble and utterly crushed. And in the other Psalms instance, the writer writes that he stretched out his hands to God, his untired, in this case the negative form of the word, the not puga, untired hands, to the Lord. And the only other time this word appears in the whole New Testament is in Genesis chapter 45 when Joseph's brothers return back to their father Jacob and say that his son Joseph is still alive and is living in Egypt in Pharaoh's kingdom. And it says that Jacob is stunned and that his heart becomes numb to the news. So when the prophet Habakkuk writes that the law is paralyzed and that justice never prevails, he's saying that the law, which represents goodness and righteousness, has become numb to the evil around him. Because when we see that word paralyzed in English, we might think, well, paralyzed means immobility or unable to act. So Habakkuk is not saying he is unable to act because Habakkuk believes that God can act. He's saying, God, why are you numb to this? You can do something about it, but you're not. Why are you allowing these things to happen? He's asking that question of why that we also find ourselves asking. Why are you numb to the pain around me and not doing anything about it? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever seen the pain and the suffering and the evil around you and thought, God, where are you and what are you doing? I know I felt that way. But in order to address some of these questions properly, we have to first understand our own anger. And if you've heard Rob and David preach over the past few weeks, we heard Rob talk a few weeks ago about how anger is not our problem when we're angry. The problem is something underneath the anger because anger is a secondary emotion. We get angry when we are sad, hurt, in pain, afraid, ashamed, or suffering. When your friend goes behind your back to talk bad about you to somebody else, and you experience hurt, and you become angry at the one who hurt you or put you to shame. Or when the child is sexually abused by a wicked man, you ache for that child and experience deep sadness for that hurting and desperate kid, which then makes you angry at the one who is the cause of this great sadness and despair and the one who makes this innocent little child afraid. See, whenever we are angry, our anger tends to be directed at the person or the thing that is making us or someone we love sad, hurt, or suffer. So when we say or we think, 
we are angry at God, we are implying that he is the one who makes us all of those things. God hurt me. God caused me to suffer. Or at the very least, we say, well, God didn't intervene and stop whatever was happening to me or to those that I love. Because our thoughts go straight to, well, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. So if this thing happened to me, that equals God did this to me. There's a quote that I love from Greg Boyd that I want to share with you. He writes, referring to God, He, God, could have created a world where we have to do His will, but it would have been a creation devoid of love. Instead, God wants to rule creation through corrigants, free agents who through love apply His sovereign will to the earth. So we know from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 when the Lord, the Trinity, says, Let us make man in our image. God creates man in His own image, the image of Christ. So just as God rules over creation, he created mankind to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that walks along the earth. God created man with free will just as God has. We're free to make our own decisions. We're free to love God or to reject God. We're free to sin or not to sin. And knowing this to be the reality, the truth is you and I don't want to live in a world where God intervenes every time. See, the problem is not with God and his ways, but it's with our limited understanding of who he is. So if we take this knowledge and go back to our problem of anger with God, if we think, well, God allowed this to happen, so it's his fault, and we compare that thought with scripture, then we have a problem. Because if we read the word of God all throughout the pages of scripture, we know that everything good comes from God. James chapter 1 says, everything, every gift that is good and perfect is from above. In 1 John, we hear all about God's love and who he is. Chapter 4, 1 John, verse, starting in verse 7, says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So if God is love and everything good comes from God, then being angry at God becomes an irrational way of thinking because he is not the cause of my grief, my sadness, my fear, my shame, or my suffering. There's a woman by the name of Heather Zempel who is a Christian author, and she works in discipleship at a church out on the East Coast. She wrote a book called Amazed and Confused, and this book is all about when God's actions collide with our expectations of who he is. And she writes in this text, God doesn't claim to be nice. He claims to be love. And there is a big difference. Because in some scenarios, being nice is not the most loving thing to do. Sometimes the best way to love someone is to be firm and direct or to even allow them to experience some level of pain sometimes. Let me give you an example. Has anybody ever yelled at their kids? Show of hands. All right, so all of us have either yelled at our kids or we've lied in church, one of the two. So you're in one of those camps. So maybe if if you've yelled at your kids before, let me give you an example. You've got a six-year-old girl playing in the yard with brother or sister, throwing the ball back and forth, and brother overthrows little six-year-old Jenna, and she runs out into the street, and she makes the catch in the middle of the road. And as this is happening, the semi-truck zooms by and has to swerve into the other lane to just nearly miss from running Jenna over in front of the house. What might be your response? You might yell, Jenna, get out of the road! Or you might put her in timeout or ground her because she knows the rules about playing in the street. And you don't yell at her or punish her just to be mean or just because you can and for the sake of doing so. No, you do it because you love your daughter more than she could ever possibly imagine. And you want the temporary pain or sadness of having dad be mad at you 
or upset or have to sit in time out or to be grounded for a few days. You want that temporary disappointment to get through to her that, man, I should never run out into the street ever again because you want her to be safe. Would anyone else in that same scenario call six-year-old Jenna over to the porch and say, man, give her a high five. Way to go, Jenna. Great catch. I'm glad that semi-truck didn't maul you over with a smile on your face. No, we wouldn't say that because though that might be nice, it might feel good to get a high five and a smile from dad, it certainly would not be loving because it would not protect her in the future. So because God cares far more about loving us than making sure he's always nice, he never promises that we won't face difficulty in our lives. All throughout scripture, we see that there are trials that we will face in this life. There will be things that make us angry, but what is promised is that God's power is greater than that of the evil one. So look at his response to Habakkuk in verse 5. When Habakkuk is saying, Lord, where are you? You could be doing something about this, and you're not. There's so much evil and pain and suffering around me. What are you doing? Where are you? God says this. Look at the nations, Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And then in the rest of this passage, God goes on to describe how destruction will come to the Babylonians, this power that had taken over the world, and the root of some of this evil, and how he will take what seems bleak and terrible and use it for good. Just like Joseph says to his brothers at the end of his life in Genesis chapter 50, his brothers who sold him into slavery to battled with killing him or not killing him and got him away because they were of their jealous rage, he says to those brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. God is greater and more powerful than sin in this world, so much so that he can use even sin to create good in our lives. I want to share with you a story about my friend Stephen. Stephen is perhaps the most humble and most joyous person I have ever known. Way up there. I, it's hard to remember a time... When Stephen didn't have a smile on his face, when he wasn't happy to be in the room with you and light up every person there. He's the kind of person that, in moments when you're not really wanting to hear it, especially in those moments when you're, you're just hot with anger and you don't really want anything nice to be said or anybody to be happy, he might come into the room and crack a joke or say something funny and make you laugh, especially when you're not really in the mood for it. It's kind of annoying sometimes. He's one of those people that you just can't help but smile when you're around them. So he's one of the most positive people I've ever met, but it's not because his life is all perfect and put together. He's been through a lot. You see, if there's anybody that you would think should be angry at God, it would be him. When he was in his early 20s, uh, Stephen was failing college. He was a frat boy in college and not the most studious of frat boys, as you can imagine. Um, and he was trying to get a degree so he could graduate and get a job. And when it came time for him and some of his friends to graduate, he had failed a class or two and couldn't quite get there. So he'd have to come back for more schooling and some of his friends moved on. And surely there was some disappointment in his family. He didn't really know what was next for him at the time. And when Stephen was in his early 30s, his wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And the doctors told them that she probably had less than a year to live. So with this news, Stephen and his wife packed up all of their belongings and their two kids, one five and one eight at the time, and they moved halfway across the country to be closer to their extended family so that Stephen might not have to raise those two kids on his own. 
And then when Stephen was in his late 40s, he watched one of those boys, the now the oldest, who is now 18, be rushed to the ER and have emergency surgery and later find out that he too had stage 4 cancer. And then over the next three years, Stephen had to watch his son endure countless hours of chemotherapy and radiation sessions. And he watched him struggle in school because of cognitive deficiencies in his brain and permanent damage. And he watched him slowly lose all of his physical and mental abilities to support himself, to lose sight of who he was, who his family was. And then Stephen had to watch his own son die and bury him at the age of 21. And then finally, when Steve... Stephen was in his mid-50s. He had to endure that same hardship all over again when his wife's cancer came back. Another brain surgery for her and a few months of treatment couldn't stop the inevitable truth that Stephen would also have to bury his wife. So the question that you're probably thinking, and the one I find myself thinking of when I hear a story like Stephen's, is how does someone who's experienced so much pain and so much loss remains so positive? How can someone have joy in the midst of so much hurt? Shouldn't he be angry? So as we ask these questions in our minds, let us turn to one other spot in the Word. We're going to be in James chapter 1. Again, starting in verse 2. As you turn there, hear these words from James. He writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So troubles are an opportunity for joy. How does that work? Where are my moms at in the room? Show a hand. Where are the moms at? I know it's Father's Day, but take a second. Where are the moms at? Yes, we love our moms, right? So I got a question for you moms, so listen up. I've heard through the grapevine that childbirth is a little bit uncomfortable for the mother. Is that, is that the case? I mean, amen. There we go. I hear some, see some nodding. Hear an amen. Yes. No. Obviously, childbirth is very painful. It's one of the thousands and thousands of reasons why we love our moms. Um, they're awesome, woman warriors, right? But you know, my wife and I—we've been married for three years. We don't have kids yet, so I have not had the beautiful privilege of being in the delivery room. But whether you have had that beautiful or horrifying privilege of being in the delivery room, depending on your perspective, you probably know what goes on. And one of my absolute favorite things in the world to see <clears throat> is the face of a woman, whether in real life or in a TV show or in a movie, the face of a woman who has just given birth. Because in a matter of about 10 seconds, that same face goes from a face of pure and utter despair and pain and hurt and suffering. And in an instant, it's transformed to one of the most pure forms of joy you can see in a person's face because they get to meet their child for the first time. And I think that moment is a perfect analogy for what James is calling us to embody in response to the trials in our life. Even some of the worst pain and the worst suffering can produce opportunities for the absolute greatest joys in life. So let's be clear about two things in this passage. What James is not saying and what he is saying. First, James is not saying that there are that we're not supposed to pretend just like our trials don't exist or that they're not hard or there's no sorrow involved in our trials. That'd simply be ignorant, right? Sometimes our trials are hurtful and scary and they just plain stink. And the other thing that James is not saying is that he's also not saying that trials are God's way of punishing us for our sins. When I was a little kid, 
I used to think that when I had a tummy ache or a headache or when I was in some kind of pain, I used to think that was God punishing me for when I was mean to my brother or when I lied to my parents. And that, this eye-for-an-eye eye mentality made sense in my pre-adolescent brain, but the truth is that today that's simply not how God operates. Even Jesus says in his life when he's asked about a blind man and what he did to deserve being born blind, Jesus in John chapter 9 says this, neither this man nor his parents sin. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, the punishment for sin is not a car wreck or disease or any of these things. The punishment for sin is death, eternal death, eternal suffering. And because you and I cannot live up to the letter of the law and we cannot fulfill what we're supposed to do because we fall short of the glory of God each and every day, Thank the Lord that there is Jesus. The only remedy for that punishment of death for each one of us is Jesus. So what is James saying? Let's skip down to verse 12. He sort of answers this question for us. He says in verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So God will bless those that endure testing and temptation on his behalf. So James is saying that our joy is not because of the trials in our life, but because of what they produce. Things like perseverance and maturity, perfection and wholeness, completeness. So we shouldn't be happy about our suffering just because we're excited that life is terrible. No, we should be happy about our suffering because we can see that there's a great opportunity for God to work in amazing ways. Because God does some of his best work when we are at our weakest the thing is, it's super easy to be a Christian when life's not hard, right? It's easy to be a Christian when we don't have any trials. It's easy to be a Christian when all my loved ones are healthy and me and my wife live, I've got a great job and a great salary and we live in our house with our 2.6 kids and our picket fence is more of a gray tint than a white, but you know, we all got problems. Like, it's easy to be a Christian when life is all cushy and great all the time. But if we don't face trials of any kind, that we have no means to put our faith into practice. It's clear in Scripture, and it's clear in our lives that we will be tested. But the one thing I want to emphasize to, to you, my friends, today is that God doesn't just test us or to pass or fail us whenever he feels like it. No, God doesn't give people cancer or instill disease or stir up deadly hurricanes. Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, those things have existed because of sin in this world. No, God is so much more powerful than evil that he uses those situations to improve us. He allows us to be tested in order to make us more perfect and more complete and more like him. One of my favorite quotes in the world, and I wish I knew who said it because I would love to get them credit and have coffee with them and talk their brains out, but it's an anonymous quote. It says this, Worship will get you through the roughest times of your life because it shifts your focus from the problem to the problem solver. You see, we have to fix our eyes on God who is the changer rather than the change that is needed. And this has been a really helpful statement for me over the last several years of my life. And I told you about my friend Stephen before, and Stephen has modeled what it means for me to have joy in the midst of trials and such an amazing way. And the reason he's been such a good model for me is because he's actually my father. And as I look back on my dad's life, he taught me what it truly means to focus on the changer rather than the change. Because you see, when he was in his early 20s and he was failing college, really about that time is when he met my mom 
who his girlfriend, who later became his wife and my mom, and she turned him from a failing frat boy into a member of the dean's list in less than one semester. So it worked out for him in that regard. And when he was in his early 30s, my mom, who was given less than a year to live, actually made a full recovery despite the odds and had been cancer-free for 20 years. And my parents' faith was strengthened because of that experience, and they had been closer to their extended family than ever before. You see, my dad has learned through these experiences to live with joy in the midst of trials because he knows what they're doing in him. He knows how they're helping him grow and maturing him in so many different ways. And he knows that when this world changes and throws things at him that he's never seen before, he serves a God that does not change. Because as the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for me, when my dad was in his late 40s, my brother Michael died of brain cancer. And I'll be honest with you, in those three years where he was battling cancer, I was not very joyful all the time. Because he was never truly the same person after that first surgery, and I really didn't think that was fair. But it wasn't that God didn't step in and save him, or that God didn't answer all the prayers for healing over the years. Cancer and early death have existed because of sin in this world for many generations. But what I was missing is that I had no idea how many lives Michael was changing while he was battling cancer. I had no idea how much hope and inspiration that he provided to people who witnessed his fight. The venue that he had to share the gospel of Jesus Christ was immaculate, unbelievable. There are people that know Christ today and will be spending an eternity with us worshiping him forever because he is dead. And personally, I had no idea that his cancer battle and death would lead me on a totally different path. Because of an experience, I ended up going to a different college that I had planned and met some different relationships with people. And I certainly didn't know that I would meet the woman who would later become my girlfriend and then my wife and the person who is closest to me now today and who I will spend the rest of my life with worshiping our Lord and doing life together. And none of that would be true because of that. And I certainly would not have ended up at some of the different places we have been, particularly here at New Hope. I would not be standing here a member of this beautiful church family community that I mentioned at the beginning of the service if it were not for his cancer battle and his death. I didn't realize many of these things until after he died, or a year later, or three, or five, or seven years later, and that's just one person's life. I am a smidgen in the grand scheme of all the lives that have been touched because of the hardships that each one of us have to endure. And then finally, when my dad was in his mid-50s, my mom died just two months ago today. And though I'm not jumping up and down with joy at the things the Lord has done through those experiences, I know that he's working in the midst of hardship. And now that I know the things that God has done in the midst of trials, I can truly have joy in the midst of mine. My brother is dead, and now my mom is dead too. But you know what? I am able to have joy in that because I know how God has shaped me and changed me and use my situation for the better, and I look forward to seeing how he's going to continue to do that, not just in me, but in so many other people around. I mentioned a quote from Heather Zemple. She has this book that she wrote called Amazed and Confused. It's all about God's actions and how our expectations of him collide. And I want to share with you one more quote from this book. She's talking about Habakkuk, as we read this morning. She writes, Habakkuk's God is not one who promises safety from the agonies of life, but rather he is a God who is sovereign over the agonies of life. 
Habakkuk's God does not promise deliverance in the valley of the shadow of death, but presence. So I want to finish this morning by reading this familiar passage of scripture that Heather is referencing in this quote. It's the first four verses of Psalm chapter 23. So hear this word this morning as I read it over you. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So let me read verse 4 one more time. It says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you will make the valley go away. Wait, wait. Oh, wait, no, that's not Psalm 23, 4. It doesn't say that God will make the valley of the shadow of death disappear. It says that even though I walk through that darkest valley, I won't fear evil. evil. Why? Because you are with me. And you comfort me and you stand by my side as I walk through that valley. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you are angry. Angry at someone or something, or maybe you're angry at God for the things that you perceive he has done to you or allowed to happen to you. So I want to invite you to do something today, if that's you. Instead of being angry at God for those things that he did not bring about, I invite you to release your anger to God because he can handle it. For we serve a God who is able to do immeasurably more than you could ever possibly ask or imagine. If you hold on to your anger, if there's one thing I've learned in this study of anger that's been reinforced by my love of Star Wars, it's that anger blinds us. Anger blinds our vision. If you are angry at God, you will always be blind to the good works that he is doing in the midst of the storm because anger blinds us. When we let our anger, our emotions drive our decision-making, we are blinded to God's handiwork around us. But when we go to the word of God and we let our decision-making and our thoughts and our emotions be driven by truth, we find strength, we find healing, and we find joy in the midst of trials. So let him work wonders and build something beautiful out of the ashes in your life. In a minute, we're going to sing a song uh, called The Father's House. And the chorus of this song reads this way. It says, lay your burdens down here in the Father's house. Check your shame at the door because it ain't welcome here anymore, here in the Father's house. So if you're here this morning and you want to talk more about that, or want to help processing your anger, or what it means to do just that, to lay your burdens down before God, or if you just have questions about what we've talked about for the past five weeks during this series on anger, I'm going to be down here at the front of the stage. Some of the elders will be here at the stage as well. My, our spouses will be with us, and we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. And maybe you're sitting here, and you're asking the question of Jesus, and you've been wrestling with that for a while. There's a, a young man and a young lady this morning, Noah and Savannah, who are in a minute, going to give their life to Christ and demonstrate that before their church family in baptism. And maybe that's a question you've been wrestling with for a long time. We would love to have that conversation with you, to pray with you. And maybe if you're ready this morning, 
the water's still going to be warm, we'd love to allow you to express that decision as well. So let's continue to worship in song this morning.